Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. Um, Andy, let me start with what I loved about the trailer. Tell me what you loved about the trailer. I loved the Tron-esque way that the lines moved to build the word labyrinth. That was really cool. I do agree right? with you. I, I thought that, that was, was pretty slick. 
That was really cool. Yeah. Anything else? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, looking at the trailer now, it's a pretty rough trailer. If I were to watch this, I would feel it was maybe appealing to an audience much younger than than myself. And so I was like, "Eh, okay. I mean, I I have kids, so I probably would take them. But it, it wouldn't be something that necessarily would be drawing me in. Going back to myself that saw this trailer, I think obviously it did its job because I I remember wanting to see this movie and going to see this movie and uh, loving this movie. So I think in that sense, it it, uh, kind of did what it was trying to do. Unfortunately, it's like, but I don't know, if I were an adult back in 1986 and saw this, it's like, I don't know. Who I, I couldn't figure out who this trailer was talking to. It highlights Jim Henson, George Lucas, and David Bowie, three people who well, were involved. But were like were those names that would be that kids would be like, oh god, this is a wait, this is a George Lucas production. Well, but see, that's the thing. I I think the kids were drawn in because of what they saw. Like I I was drawn in because of the stuff that I saw the 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 characters, kind of the the comedy that stuff was what I was drawn into. But as an adult. So you think the parents are going for the pedigree? Well, that's what I think that they were trying to do here with this trailer, (laughs) saying, hey, Jim Henson, he does the Muppets. George Lucas, he did Star Wars, even though nothing in here looks like Star Wars. So it's an odd thing to throw in. David Bowie, uh, what do they say he is? He's the um, the, one of the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, which (laughs) I was like, well, might be a stretch. Um, But still, it's like... It was creating this strange Venn diagram, and in 1986, I don't know if that there was really much of an overlap between, you know, fans yeah. of Henson, Lucas, or Bowie. Uh, maybe more so today, but still, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that they were trying to draw people in, but I just don't know. I, but they, I think they were struggling. I think they were struggling. Yeah, and and, and you know, I mean, they it. It doesn't really celebrate music as much. I mean, there's a little bit of it, but you don't get a sense that it's a musical movie so much. Well, and that's a hard thing to do in trailers anyway, you know, cutting in bits of songs. I mean, Disney's done it a few times with some of their animated films, and it's it's you, you get like, you know, a refrain or something really brief, and you can't really connect to it very well. I mean, more so, they'll they'll kind of cut those trailers together after... The movie's been out for a while. It's like, come back and see Aladdin again and make it a part of your world, you know, and then they'll break into song, a whole new world, something where it's like everybody already knows the song now. Well, I think we've learned a lot, though, because, I mean, look at the trailer for The Greatest Showman, uh, which looks terrific, and it definitely celebrates that this is a musical movie. I haven't seen it, but um, (gasps) but I believe... Believe you. So good. <laughs> Clearly, we've learned a lot in the you know last three decades. But you know, point taken. I, you know, this is it, the trailer doesn't celebrate enough of the fact that this is a, a, a musical movie, and maybe that's okay because as a musical movie, it's pretty anemic, and maybe hey, the trailer hey, just hey, represents now. that. Hey, oh, now. I'm on it. I know. <laughs> I know. I well, know. but you're right though. It's David Bowie music, and I, I mean. I think that his music has its fan base, um, um, but I don't think it's, uh, you know, just kind of the general movie musical kind of pop stuff that would, would be out there that would be drawing people in much easier. Like they, they use a clip of Within You in the trailer, which arguably is the, is the one, like I would say his most challenging song in the movie. Right, it's it's a uh, a darker song. It's not something that sounds fun at all. 
It's not like they used, you know, uh, dance magic. Yeah, like the dance magic. magic, Right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough song to kind of throw into the trailer. Or chili down. Or chili down. Right. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. So weird. Would have been better if they just run Space Oddity all the way through. TriStar Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets and Dark Crystal. Where you go with a head like that? George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. (laughs) Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible, and nothing is what it seems. Everything I've done, I've done for you. I move the stars for no one. The world of Labyrinth. This is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, David Bowie shows us everything he's made of in our latest listener's choice pick. The last one for 2017, it's Jim Henson's 1986 film, Labyrinth. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you enjoy this show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members-only weekend show, and get better chances of being part of our next Listener's Choice episode when we have that kicking off sometime, I don't know. <laughs> In the middle of early-ish in 2018 2018-ish. Totally unrelated. We should probably build our 2018 schedule. We probably should. Asking for a friend. Yes, just head on over to patreon.com slash the next week. Andy, before we dig into the movie, we you know we did have the opportunity to have at Mel Bowie, Melanie from Melbourne, joined us to uh, introduce the film we're talking about tonight. She was very kind, very generous with her time, and uh, we had the opportunity to chat with her. Uh, about why she chose this particular movie. I think we should go talk to her right now. What do you want? You want a story? Huh? Once upon a time, there was a beautiful young girl whose stepmother always made her stay home with the baby. And the baby was a spoiled child, and he wanted everything for himself, and the young girl was practically a slave. All right, welcome to the show, Mel, all the way from down under. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I am good. I am good. Glad to have you on board. Thank you. So, uh, Mel, you have uh, you won the listener's choice uh, challenge here with us this uh, this first choice or last choice of the year. Last choice of the year. It's the holiday choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to celebrate, you picked a movie that is special to your heart. Do you want to introduce it for us? So I've picked uh, Labyrinth, which is special to my heart. It's actually the first uh, movie that I ever saw where I saw like a spoiler behind-the-scenes show before I actually saw the movie. 
Ooh. I thought it would be a nice tribute to all the spoilers that you do that I picked up. <laughs> I love that. I love it. It's like a, it's an homage. What, uh, what, what was the spoiler? How were you spoiled before the movie? So I never saw this at the cinema. Um, there was like a, a TV special on a Sunday night. I think I was about 11. Um, and it was all the behind the scenes of how they made the movie because it was a big sort of Jim Henson, Frank Oz uh, kind of, you know, it was all the time of Fraggle Rock and Dark Crystal. Um, so I saw this one-hour TV special um, before, probably two years before I'd even seen the movie. So by the time I saw it, I knew all about how they'd made it and the special effects. Um, I mean, I love the movie in its own right, but that's that's why I picked it for this one. And it's one of those movies that um, I think for some people, you know, they it hit at the right time in their life where they found themselves just really connected to it and have kept that connection through the years. Um, other people might look back on it and go, you know, they might watch it now as an adult and go, oh, that's kind of a an odd little movie. But I, I mean, I'm one of those people where it did just completely hit at the right time in my life. And I don't know if it's just me or if I, if I'm just too judgmental, but I have a hard time seeing a movie through other people's eyes when they don't like it. <laughs> I really like it. Like something like this. Like I could never see that version of it. Like what are they watching? This is a brilliant movie. I feel sorry for them. I do too. <laughs> I, you know, I actually, I'm, I, I don't not like this movie. I just haven't seen it as much as you guys have. Clearly, I, I remember liking it very much. Although I also remember it giving me just horrifying uh, nightmares. The, the helping hands are a disaster for my psyche, uh, <laughs> and, and stuck with me for years and years, even long after I remembered the, the general, or I'd forgotten the general premise uh, of, of this movie. I, I, I don't. I don't know if I was. Let's see. When did it actually come out? It hit in eighty six. I was not too. Yeah. I wasn't too young for it. Uh, I I definitely you know I was a teenager. It just plagues on your fears of being groped too much. <laughs> that's, that's too soon, Andy. I don't know. If you, I don't know if you know what's going on in in Hollywood right now, but that's, <laughs> that's way too soon. That's a trigger word. <laughs> yeah. Right. So what is it? What is it, Mel? That uh, that connects uh, that connected you with this movie? I mean, the, the obviously uh, we've you know Sarah Jennifer Connelly. Um, she's she. Did you find a a, a babysitting heroine in her? Uh, I had an older sister, or have an older sister, and she was like Sarah for me at that time, always off having adventures. So I would be sitting and I was sitting at home going, oh, I'd like to do that, and also I had to get a vest as soon as that movie was done like, oh my god where can i get a vest from <laughs> i my memory of this and i haven't watched it yet uh for for the show yet but my memory of it is that that she was a real jerk to to like children <laughs> her baby brother <laughs> like she was, it was like way too much who she wishes away with the goblin right King. right just what yeah. a jerk it's very self-centered She's a sibling, you know. Siblings are that way. I mean, you know that. You have siblings, Pete. Yeah, well, I, I birthed them. I didn't grow up with them, so maybe that's why I totally can't relate. Are you an old, you're the oldest, are you? I, I'm, I'm the oldest. Pete is an only child. Uh, but I have, I have a sister, and I certainly saw in Sarah kind of that, uh, that uh, love-hate relationship that you sometimes have with your sibling when you're a kid. It, uh, it it very much felt that way, and and it's it made sense to me. Her brother was just dragging her down. 
He's a, he's the, the baby infant boat anchor. That's what he is, just a boat anchor on her social life. You know, I can't, I sort of can't get over the people who are involved, involved in this film. Obviously, it's a, uh, it, you know, it's a um, Jim Henson kind of Frank Oz joint, but Terry Jones, uh, Dennis Lee, uh, produced by, uh, holy cow, that's George Lucas? Uh, yes, it is. That's, that's kind of an amazing group of people at this period of time. Not to mention David Bowie. Yeah, right? <laughs> yes, with his with his incredibly tight pants. Oh, my God. <laughs> my younger sister and I, used to, that's all we used to laugh at. Like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, wow, those are... Yeah, that, the dance magic dance scene, I just remember. Yeah. It's like, oh, maybe you shouldn't be wearing those pants while he's dancing like that. <laughs> In a children's movie. <laughs> children's movie. Were you, were you a big fan of the Muppets and like everything Jim Henson was doing, Mel? Uh, uh, yeah, I was actually at that at that point. So that was actually why I was first interested in it because I think they were pitching it at a time, you know, in kind of oh, if you love Dark Crystal, you should see this. Yeah, probably. But it's not really. It's for me, it's completely different. I think Dark Crystal is a children's movie. This has kind of got a weird combination of lots of things in it. Yeah, this is well. It's interesting because Dark Crystal, Dark Crystal is definitely a darker movie. I mean, that's that has some darkness for kids. Although I, I loved it as a kid. It's just it didn't, it didn't um, feel the need to talk down to kids. And I think that's why maybe that one has always stuck with me too. And this one's always kind of had a magic about it. Um, it, it it really kind of went a, kind of a different, like a more musical kind of wild direction with its fantasy. And I think that was, uh, I, I don't know, I thought it was always kind of a fun way to do it. It's the um the scene though where they decapitate people, you know, the puppets' heads and limb swap. I've always found that really. <laughs> we, I, that's the fast forward scene. If there's a fast forward scene in this movie, it's like mm, not going to watch that bit. Those little creatures were pretty crazy. Like try to tear her head off and everything. Yep, yep. <laughs> and we gotta we gotta just say because I know you were a, a big fan of our uh, Star Trek series, which we just did. I am. Um, I always loved the fact that Gates McFadden was involved with these guys at this time and that she was involved in getting this movie uh, made. She was like, she was a choreographer. Yeah. Isn't that just crazy? Like, I just like wrapping my head around that with Gates McFadden just always like it's just nutty. She's she, and she's she was in the behind the scenes, um, like spoiler thing that I saw. And I'm like, oh my God, it's all so full circle. I didn't realize all these years later that I would love all the things that these people would do. In the different in the different sort of shows that they would go on to. That's amazing. Yeah, right. That blows my mind. That Gates McFadden is the singularity. Like she brings yeah. everyone <laughs> together. She's the Kevin Bacon. She <laughs> is the Kevin Bacon. She's practically more Kevin Bacon than Bacon. Oh, so yeah. funny. This well, it's it's one of those movies that um, you know, I saw it as a guy, and it's about a uh, a young girl kind of having this kind of fantasy adventure. And I think I don't think it really hit me at the time as a as a young boy who watched it. I just saw it as a really fun fantasy film and enjoyed it. But now, um, as a as a father of a young girl, I really love the fact that here is this story about this this uh, you know fifteen year old girl who goes on this amazing adventure. And I don't I don't know if there were that many stories like that at the time. And now you certainly see more more movies that are tailored toward toward girls and everything or with girl heroes and everything. But it's, and and I think it speaks to the fact that at least for kids watching it, it's like you don't even pay attention to those sorts of things. And I think that's something that really is special about this. But I think it's also something that now 
you know, is just a highlight being able to say, look, you can make these sorts of movies and it speaks to everybody. I, I certainly notice it now. And I think I remember when I, I would say I was re-watching, I re-watched in my 20s and I was a huge Buffy fan. And, you know, this was kind of the first, it, you're right, this was sort of the first, you know, female hero off on her own on an adventure. I know there was a uh, some chat on Slack about this in Goonies. I mean, they'd completely, Goonies was all about the boys going off on an adventure and that was nice to have the girls there. Um, but this, <laughs> this for me, this was one where I was like, I could, I, I could see myself in her having an adventure. And it, yeah, I think that's why I liked it at the time. But yeah, you're right. My, I'm, I'm excited for my daughter to watch it. She's too scared of it at the moment. She's only four. And oh, she yeah. <laughs> doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't like lots of things about it. When, when do you so introduce yeah. your daughter to this movie? Um, I, I reckon it's another, uh, I reckon it's eight. All right. For me, it's eight. When you sort of when because she she doesn't like any of some of the scenes are too scary for her, mm-hmm. um, but she knows who David Bowie is now and she's like oh that's David that's a David Bowie owl we oh, saw one the other great. day out in the, while we were going for a walk. <laughs> I had this experience with my kids. Uh, my kids are older, eleven and fifteen now. And we're driving in the car, and uh, you know they were asking me, "Dad, what's the movie for the week? What's the movie?" Well, it's it's interesting. We're going to be doing Labyrinth. This is a. I think we should put it on for family movie night so you guys can see it. And um, you know, it's it's about this you know young girl, and she wishes her baby brother away, and goes to the. And my daughter starts filling in the the plot synopsis, and she's doing it with that sort of roll of the eye kind of attitude. And she goes and she meets the Goblin King, and he's a famous rock star. And oh my goodness, then there's the puppets, <laughs> and and then my son starts picking up. She says, "Oh yeah," and there's the hand thing, and there. I'm like, "You guys, how do you know this?" And they said. You showed it to us like six years ago, and that was way too early, my son says. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm real sorry. <laughs> I had no memory of it. Clearly, I'm in the wrong. Oh, it's so funny. But that's what I loved about some of these kid films at the time is that they they were not just, you know, talking down to the kids. They were actually kind of making them a little more, uh, you know, kind of some frightening stuff, even like this in The Dark Crystal, both with some of these creatures have some pretty creepy moments. So I, you know, it's something that these guys were doing. They, they didn't hold back and I appreciate that. Well, and I think that's part of the gift of, you know, Henson and Oz. Like these are guys who felt like, you know, we can use puppets to tell any story we want and we're going to prove it. And that's going to be uh, the dark crystal and it's going to be horrifying to a lot of people, but it's going to tell the story we want. It's going to be labyrinth. It's going to augment this amazing world. It's going to be, you know, Star Wars, we're going to put make a, a puppet a central part of this otherwise very human story. Um, like we're, we're just we're not afraid of using the tool that we that we love so much to actually tell the story we want to tell. And I, I think that is um, that that's amazing uh, all the way up through, you know, um, uh, what was that? Fantastic is one of my very favorite uh, science fiction shows. Uh, I, it's from. Australia, actually, it's the. I can't help no, you. no, no! I know you I'm can, and you. I am sure if you were a fan of Buffy, you gotta, you gotta know this show. It was a Farscape, Farscape. Please, I never watched it. Okay, never did it. Never watched it. Andy, you are pardoned, uh, but <laughs> Mel, I'm sorry. Welcome to the show. This is your first public shaming. Really, really, yeah, really, really. Oh my goodness! This show was great. It was so much fun, and uh, it was it full of great, great, great uh, performances and wonderful puppets. 
And uh, it, it was exactly what I'm talking about. It, like, we're just not afraid to tell the stories we want to tell and light them and goo them and make them look really, really gross. But they're just, of course, they're puppets and you're going to believe it because you fall in love with it so quickly. So um, high marks to Farscape. That's a fun, fun sci-fi romp. Consider oh, it. Cool. Consider it homework. Consider. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, this is. I, I'm really excited to watch this again. Uh, this is. Um, it's. It's one of those movies that I know I clearly have watched in my house in the last six years, but uh, I am shamed to know myself that that I don't remember doing it. Uh, and so I'm really excited to jump back into it on the show. It's I, I heard somebody uh, was mentioning to somebody that we were doing this, and they said, "Oh yeah, 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 Labyrinth. That's uh, that's Dark Crystal plus uh, Adventures in Babysitting." I thought, "Yeah, I, I think that's probably pretty close." <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I guess it can be. <laughs> sure. Uh, any final words you have for us, uh, uh, Mel, to wish us uh, on our way to to watch and review this movie? What would you like us to to particularly watch out for? Uh, my, I mean, my favourite scene is the um, is I, I like the iconic scene when David Bowie first appears, and he's doing the the juggling with the orbs, which at the Ooh. time I thought, oh my god, I, I can't, I'd love to learn how to do that, and then I realised that he never does it, and that was a bit devastating that it's some some very experienced person standing behind him doing it. But I, lo- I just oh, love when he first appears. That's the thing he's doing, like r- rolling the orbs on his hands and fingers and things? Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember trying. I remember sitting in my room like trying to, trying to do it, I think probably with a tennis ball or something lame like that. Um, but I, I, for me, that's the, that's the scene, that's the scene that um, says to me, okay, here we, we're, here we go. We're about to watch an amazing adventure. Outstanding. You weren't you weren't alone in trying that, so. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, what do you think? Are we ready to go? Fantastic. Yep let's let's start chatting about let's it. Let's dig in. Thank you, everybody, and thank you, Mel from Australia. Where are you? Are you in Melbourne? I'm in Melbourne. Melbourne, yeah. uh, all the way from Melbourne for for jumping in and for jumping in on Slack. It is just great uh, to have you on board, and thanks for all your contributions. And now uh, on to the show. Thank you. See ya. Listen, she's going to. I can bear it no longer. Goblin King, Goblin King, wherever you may be, take this child of mine far away from me. Andy, I feel like um, I I hadn't watched the movie before we spoke with Mel. And I hadn't, I told you, I hadn't seen it in a long time. Right, yeah, you did say that. And you watch it every every Friday. <laughs> I sure do. You're really connected to it. My memory of it was so far off. I mean, bananas. It's like a different movie. I didn't even remember there was music in it. Like, I really didn't remember there was music. I, the, the, they started singing. I thought I saw the wrong movie. I remembered a lot of elements that were like elements that I thought were scary or kind of shocking, surprising, funny, um, uh, cool. But I, I didn't remember the whole thread of the movie. I, I don't I don't know what happened, but um, I I'm nervous to say this out loud. <laughs> I was not as connected to the movie as I had hoped to be. How's that? That's delicate. I think that's delicate. But a lot of that was also influenced by watching it with my kids. And my kids, my daughter is roughly the same age as Sarah. And uh, uh, my son is obviously younger, uh, but uh, they also were, I I think, uh, generously bearish on this movie. Uh, My daughter said this was forced. Uh, 
the music, both of them were big thumbs down on the music. Um, they said the comedy was forced and weird. Uh, it never made sense why they're, why, you know, the, the way they did the puppets, they were the chili down song was just so out of, uh, out of context. Like my own kids did not relate to this movie the way I, I thought that they would. And so I think that even uh, influenced my impression of it. It's just, uh, it, it just didn't hold up. Well, obviously you're speaking for yourself. <laughs> because, <laughs> um, this is a movie I, I grew up with. This is one that I, I fell in love with as soon as I watched it. I had the cassette uh, tape and I memorized it. I I knew every beat of uh, Trevor Jones' score. I knew every note and uh, word of the songs. Um, I just completely loved it. I, I I bought the VHS as soon as it came out and I watched it all the time. And, and you still feel that way when you watch it today. You still you watch it and you feel it, or are you are you the ten uh, year old kid? Oh, I, I now watching it, I see problems in it. I definitely do see issues throughout, but, um, but I have a hard time, um, letting go of that young self watching it. I mean, I, I really just have a lot of fun watching it. I actually think there's a lot more to this film than I even probably realized at the time. Uh, my kids, uh, just love it. My daughter, you know, she's just like, Oh, I just watched that dad. I don't want to watch it again. I'm like, well, I have to watch it, so you don't have to, but I'm going to. And and uh, it didn't take long, and and uh, before she was sitting on the couch next to me watching it with me, and my son just, yeah. you know, he was sitting there. We loved it. Um, it's just, it's a movie that I that is close to my heart, and it's one that I uh, have always loved, and probably always will love, um, despite some of the issues that uh, that I have with it. Well, I'm excited to hear about those issues. Uh, I, I asked my daughter, and this is what I've heard. And this is obviously we've talked about this. My my daughter, uh, you know, I I walked out in the hall just before we pushed record. I was out there talking to her. She was she was picking up maggots off our counter. Don't ask. Long, totally long story. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's she's into that kind of stuff. And I said, look, just one more question on the movie. This main character, are you okay? Are you going to be able to recover? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Yeah, maggots, stay cool, Andy. Yeah, stay good. cool. Just picking the magnets, picking the magnets, maggots off the counter, and and I said, is there like you're roughly her age, and uh, you know, do you find that that you can relate to her? Like even if you think about the the opening sequence, you know, the when she's still in human land, and uh, and she said, nope, not a little bit, not even a little bit. She just did not connect to Sarah. And I thought that was re- that really surprised me. And maybe it was because she was distracted by the maggots. I can't, I can't confirm or deny. <laughs> Can neither confirm nor deny the uh, influence of the maggots. I think it has a lot of heart. But my goodness, the Bowie music is it. It's really dates it. And I think for somebody like me who who doesn't have the same connection to the movie that you do, uh, the musical numbers were out of whack. They were tonally out of whack. They they just they didn't fit. They were they were you know I think too sort of psychedelic for you know, for the film's good. And I'm super bothered by the fact that the Goblin King is a, is a, you know, a high haired made up dandy and all the goblins are ghastly puppets. Like it just, I just, I've always had a problem with that. And so, um, you know, if he's the Goblin King, he's a goblin, make him look like a goblin and uh, don't put him in those 
pants for crying out loud. It's just terrible. <laughs> I I think that uh, I mean what you just said is you know it it didn't it, the music seemed too psychedelic for the film. And to me, it's like this film if it fit it fits. I mean it, this world is so nonsensical and illogical and almost psychedelic. Where I think that it works. I think it actually has this nice feel with it. I, I think it's an interesting tone that Bowie brought uh, to it. I mean, yes, it it might, I, I don't know if it's 80s-ish or what, but I mean, definitely when you get to Trevor Jones' score, which we'll talk about, I mean, there's it's definitely like the 80s synth uh, sound that was definitely going whole hog throughout. But I, I feel like that there's some element of fairy tale that has a feel that fits well with the music here. I also think that in the in the world of fairy tales, I think it makes sense where you've got this handsome uh, king ruling like these these awful, ugly goblins. It feels very much like something that you would find in a Grimm's fairy tale. And I, I just really feel like if he's the king of the goblins, like that's different than the goblin king. You know, like do you know what uh, I mean? Like no, it may be, it may sound semantic, but well, I, I I see that, but I I don't I don't know. I guess I I don't have a problem with it, especially because a lot of this is largely I I think you could say it's it's uh, in in Sarah's head. I mean, I, I you know this is kind of falls into that Wizard of Oz, Time Bandits, Alice in Wonderland, those sorts of stories where it's like. Did it really happen or was it all just in their imagination? I think all of these stories largely set it up where it really did happen, even if it seems like it's in their imagination. But I think it taps into the imagination of the particular protagonist in any given story and fits within their world. And I think Sarah is a really interesting character because she is this teenage girl who's kind of on that that borderline between being a kid and being an, an adult. And she still is very much like a kid, but she, I mean, right from the beginning in her room, you see a lot of the, the, the childish playthings that she has in there and the childish books and everything. But then you also see that she's getting like, she's doing her little magazine cutouts and she's putting, you know, the, the cutouts of the handsome people up on her mirror and everything that she's kind of... Um, has his goo goo eyes over and stuff like that. And I think that having the Goblin King played by David Bowie fits really nicely with what's going on in Sarah's head. It, this kind of this, this split that all of a sudden is happening where she's starting to grow up a little bit. She's starting to maybe find some, some men attractive and she's starting to move into that world. And that's what I really enjoy about this film is that it, it's, it's so much about what's going on with Sarah and this journey that she's taking, not just this physical journey, but also this emotional journey uh, as she's starting to grow up and having to kind of change a little bit. Well, and, and I agree with you. I think I, and I think she is, she is good. Even, you know, I, I think her coming of age story, you know, I feel like it has some hard edges. Like it, it's, it's tough to really like her early in the film. It's tough to like her because she's she's whiny, she's not nice to her brother, she's really entitled and it's all there. It's all part of, you know, the age and and I think they're they're sort of ham-fisting what you're talking about the that she's growing up and it's awkward and we only have a few minutes to convey that and as a result it ends up being heavy-handed. Well, and some of that is I think falls to uh some 
pretty bad writing and directing in the in that opening scene at her house. It's it's pretty terrible. It's, it's some very strange things going on there, and I I definitely agree with that. Although there's some elements that I think are really really good. I adore her learning lines, like in the uh, out playing the the princess, and she's like reciting lines from the book, and I think that sort of frivolity. She's like approaching that sort of play with a level of sophistication and that is that's what it means to grow up finding the thing that usually you know i you know i used to love legos and just jamming blocks together and suddenly there's a day when you want to do legos and you're building the death star you know what i mean like it goes from a level of play to sophistication and she's going from um you know a level of just loving fantasy to a level of uh, actually you know learning lines and reciting lines and and acting and i think that's really fun and the fact that it turns turns from what you think is this kind of uh, this this sort of prissy you know girl playing fairyland it starts to rain and she suddenly is just traipsing through the rain with a muddy dog and has, still has that that you know major jolt of tomboy which is just so um it's so charming um you know watching her kind of uh, exist in her skin and i think that's really fun i i i like those elements a lot you know and and so i i found them really touching yeah, absolutely. I, I think that uh, that uh, uh, Jennifer Connelly fits that really well and brings a lot of that uh, to this role. And 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 I think that she works as this this older sister. And yes, she's a little whiny. And you know, I I think maybe we could have. I think in if you moved this into kind of modern screenwriting, you could have ended up having a better like a save the cat moment with her or something that was toward the beginning that kind of gave us a little more to like about her right out of the gate. But you're right. She is mostly pretty whiny. Um, the setup with her dad and stepmom is a little rough. Um, the setup with her brother, like all of that. She just comes across as a really whiny girl before um, wishing her brother away and the Goblin King takes her and all that. Um but I, I don't know, maybe it's just I, I have seen this so many times where I've kind of grown and I've I've connected with her more and I, I find it easier to uh, to kind of go along with, with the journey she ends up taking. And I don't have those problems anymore with her being a little uh, rough at the beginning. I, I do have a, a significant context-related problem with the relationship between her and the Goblin King, that it is such a, a significant age discrepancy and uh, that she is so clearly young, even though she is aspirational to his attentions, um, you know, say that's the case we want to make in this film, uh, watching it with today's eyes is tough to swallow because the mechanics don't work and you're sort of forced to think about you know, um, the you know when fantasy becomes blech, you know, um, impropriety. Well, yeah, I mean, looking at it with, with today's eyes, I think you're going to run into that, and I think that's well, it's creepy. I think that's all. You know, it's it's going to be it's the curse of looking at it with everything going on in society now. It's just like it just makes it much more difficult. Now, I think when you go back and you look at it through the eyes of a, a you know. A, of this young girl who's going through puberty and is starting to kind of come into her own and look at it. It's really her story in her head. And it's, it's about her kind of finding things that she is attracted to. And it might be this, this man, this goblin King, if it were just, if it were like a, you know, a rock star or something, granted it is a rock star, it but is it actually were, literally but, a rock star. But if it were just a rock star and not a Goblin <laughs> King, 
um, and it was more of a real world sort of story, then I think it would have a lot more issues because it falls into the fantasy world. And I don't think there really ever is an idea of uh, a romance between them, despite the the fact that Jareth um, does kind of seem to allude to that a few times. I yeah. don't think that that's necessarily. Um, you don't think the, the dance direction. sequence is is the implied romance? Uh, to a certain extent, yes, but also I think it's it's his way of of distracting her and making her forget about what is really at stake here. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's absolutely true. But um, but to put her in this fancy adult dress and put her in the context of this uh, fancy adult party, distraction or not, they're holding each other close. You know, they're dancing close. And uh, I, I think part of of that sequence and part of her running away, uh, one is, yeah, I got to rescue the baby. Right. But two is um, I'm I'm uncomfortable in this relationship. Maybe, you know, this is something that, um, you know, I thought I wanted and I really don't. And it's scary and I'm not ready for it. And, you know, there are all these sorts of the, the we, we confront the conflict that, you know, puberty presents. Right. You, you, you talk a good game. You cut out lots of, of cute magazine faces. But when it comes time to actually face what it means to have a more adult relationship, it's terrifying. Sure. Uh, you don't know how. And so, um, and, and so you run away. And I think that's, that is the, the sequence, what that sequence represents to me. Right. That's what it's trying to, to demonstrate. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it is scary. And I, again, I think that's, that's an interesting element about this film that they don't shy away from. They're actually, you know, exploring this this girl and this point in her life where she is growing up and she's starting to go through these these moments. And it, it does end up posing itself as a much more frightening moment for her. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I do too. I, I do too. I love what the film is is trying to do, and I think you know you get that moment. You also have this beautiful moment that I think of, uh, is a little bit more slapstick. You know, right after she she does the uh, the the two doors, the the lying door and the truth telling door, and she says, "I'm getting smarter," and then falls down a well. You know, I mean, that's that's just a beautiful bit of comedy that also celebrates the same thing. You know, it's like I'm exploring my ego; it's flowering because I am awesome, and oh my god, I'm not awesome. Yeah, and that yeah. Uh, and that always that that takes us right to your um your most terrifying uh, place, which is the uh, all the the hands everywhere, which I think is hilarious because now in context, you know, having seen more films and everything, it, it's like watching Repulsion for kids is what we're getting yeah, here. That's you right. Know, this is this terrifying thing, and you know, just a, another funny thing. I think it's funny that in order to call the goblins to take her brother away she has to like say the right words and it's like it's like candy man for kids like all these <laughs> it's things totally like, candy man for kids it's so funny it is like candy man for kids and i think that's what it's trying to you know that's kind of what it's trying to accomplish this is a this is a uh, it's a gateway film i think for kids and and in that respect i think it's great and the, the what they did you know i'll say the word technology but really the the uh, oh oh yeah i'm going to say this too the manual approach uh, that they took to make the helping hands was stunning, right? It was beautiful and oh, smart. Yeah. It's it's so fantastic. It's it, it again. It's just one of those elements that that adds to the building of this world, this absurdist world where really anything is possible. Uh, it, it's just one more element that um, 
not only does it fit perfectly within everything going on in the world where you have these, you know, multiple hands coming together to form faces that can actually speak, I think it also speaks to the brilliance of Jim Henson and the level of puppeteering he and his team were operating on, where they were exploring kind of every every different option that they could um, they could come up with in order to uh, do puppets. They had uh, little tiny hand puppets. They had you know full body costume puppets that people would wear. They had. Uh, the 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 um, fireies were I, I can't remember what the the term is for the type of puppets, but it's where it's done on like a black velvet velvet stage. All the performers are wearing black velvet outfits, and then they have puppets that they're actually manipulating in front of them, and that's how they filmed the fireies, which was a different kind. Then they had like the the giant like robot um uh you know uh armor guy that pops out of the door that was like this big thing that's it's like this giant puppet driven by a puppet it's like so many levels that they had going on here i I just was constantly impressed with the work that uh henson and his team were doing to not just do really cool things with puppets but also develop puppeteering uh and explore new ways to do puppeteering well and you know it made me think of believe it or not the first um the first star wars prequel um, you know, that they would use that the fireys would end up being the sort of full size body puppets tied to the actors with sticks. And so is C3PO in that movie, you know, and I think that's that's actually really cool um, that we have, you know, a glorified puppet of such an important character, um, uh, you know, in a movie that's that's such a, a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it made me it made me actually wax rhapsodic about the first prequel for about <laughs> three seconds. So there you go. Fantastic. There you go. Praise for the Phantom Menace right here. (laughs) See, I don't even speak its name. (laughs) You want me to talk about Voldemort? All the live long day. But no, I will not say that name in that Uh, film. So funny. Um, uh, Is this film, uh, is this where, speaking of Harry Potter, is this where Hogwarts came from? I I don't know. I was wondering that too, because I'm like, Hogwarts. Hogwarts? That's awesome. <laughs> it made me wonder if uh, if uh, Rowling had uh, had just recently watched this before she sat down with her nap. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, this is we're referring, of course, to Hoggle, uh, the amazing uh, puppet uh, human human puppet combo creature. <laughs> right. Uh, another stunning uh, use of puppet technology. Yeah, I mean, Hoggle is a kind of a little dwarf goblin uh, mix that uh, ends up uh, befriending and helping Sarah. And Hoggle was controlled by four puppeteers. Um, there was a, a little person inside Hoggle, played by uh, Shari Weiser. Uh, Brian Henson did the voice, and he was uh, also operating the um, the mouth so that he could kind of talk while he was doing it. Um, and then there were the other puppeteers who were running all of the different um, uh, motors. There were 18 motors just in Hoggle's face to do the eyebrows and the eyelids and the and the nose and the the lips and everything. And you watch the and so so uh, Shari Weiser, the little person who was kind of running around in Hoggle, had to kind of peek through the mouth when she could, and she also had to wear these giant robotic hands because Hoggle had much bigger hands than her own. And she she had all these controls in her hands to try to like pull handkerchiefs out of her pockets and whatever. It's just like 
an insane amount of technology went into making this puppet do what it could. And I think it worked really well. I, I actually, I think Hoggle is a, a just a fantastic feat. And actually they were talking about on, I think it was one of the, the, I think it was actually the the um, the making of that came out around the time the movie did, where they say climbing the ladder for Hoggle uh, when she uh, when Hoggle and uh, Sarah are are escaping the oubliette uh, was actually like one of the most dangerous stunts in the film because it was so hard for her to actually <laughs> grab onto the rungs of the ladder. It's like wow, in context, that is pretty interesting. That is, that's amazing. That is amazing. Uh, she's wonderful. What did you think of Hoggle as a character? I, I, I was puzzled by Hoggle. It was one of the weaker characters for me. I, I didn't think so. I, what I think is nice about these characters is, um, and actually it's funny because I think Henson ended up, you know, that he and um, uh, uh, Brian Froud had kind of come up with this concept and, and uh, eventually George Lucas was, he brought George Lucas on uh, to kind of help him because Lucas had a lot of um, understanding of, um, you know, just the, the structure of stories and kind of the, the myth, mythos of storytelling and everything. And I don't know, I know George Lucas kind of did some work on the script. I don't know specifically, but I felt like these characters do fit into certain um, uh, stereotypes or certain character types that are kind of key story characters. And Hoggle seems like this this one who is very much, um, you know, the the loyal friend, but is kind of afraid to commit. And I, I liked that that bit with Hoggle, where Hoggle is kind of too cowardly. He 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 wants to. He likes the fact that uh, Sarah wants to be his friend. He's never had a friend before, and here Sarah is like, say, hey, you're my friend. He loves that, but he's also a coward. He's afraid of Jareth, and so he keeps doing what Jareth says, even though it's going to affect his friendship. And I thought that was a really interesting character trait. And I thought it was a really strong choice for them. See, I, I like what I, I like how you describe it. I just didn't find it as compelling in the film. Like it felt so much more like a um, like the character um, never really committed. Like anytime we're stuck in a position where the character has to make a choice, has to make an emotional choice, has to like it, I, I didn't get it. It was not written with I enough of a commitment. And, and it's so hard to recognize how hard it is to convey the kind of commitment through acting when you're in a mechanical sort of machine like this. I, I recognize that. My case is that it was not written to resolve in a compelling enough way um, that we could see the character's change coming. Like we could see the character had learned a lesson, had made a commitment, had actually faced the the you know faced his demon and and moved forward in a new light. And and uh, it, it so it was it was sort of an anemic transformation when he finally shows up and gets in the big metal guy and you know. Um, yeah, I, I just didn't didn't find it a character that I was eager to go back to. Well, I can see that. Um, it makes me sad, but but <laughs> <laughs> that's your counterpoint. It well, makes I, you sad, Andy. I will not fall for your emotional toying. <laughs> I I mean I I don't know what to tell you. I already I kind of gave you my my uh my my point. Yeah. You were counterpointing, so you're right. I was counterpointing. <laughs> so I I, I okay. don't I don't need to counterpoint your counterpoint. Uh, okay, uh, things that I, I really, another thing I really loved. Can we talk about Michael Motion? Yes, please. 
Oh my goodness, this guy is amazing. Now, I, of course, was one of the legions who believed for many, many years until probably last week that uh, David Bowie actually at one point learned to do the juggling thing with the crystals. Uh, David Bowie did not learn to do the juggling thing with the crystals. It was a guy named Michael Motion, and Michael Motion is amazing. He is amazing. He did the whole thing, all of that, uh, the crystal work, the the ball juggling and the flipping, dipping, doobly-doo over his hands, making it look all cool. He did that blind, ducking behind David Bowie with his own arm in David Bowie's sleeve uh, up in front of him, uh, at least for, for a number of the shots that they captured. I mean, the, the hoops they had to jump through to stage motion in position to shoot as if he was David Bowie's arm. Wonderful and innovative, and I was really moved by that. Jim Henson said, uh, I can't remember how many takes we had to do to get it right, but it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? The, the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, you know, you can. there's a lot of it. And there is one in particular where, um, you know, he's talking to, uh, Bowie is talking to Hoggle, and he's about to throw Hoggle uh, a, uh, he, he whips his hand up, and he does one of the flippy-dippy things, and then he throws the crystal to Hoggle, and Hoggle catches it, and it's a peach. And so they're shooting that sequence, and Motion just can't get it. He's do over and over again. He whips it up, and it falls he whips it up and it falls and you can see his face nestled in the small of of david (laughs) bowie's back and it's just cringing and the guy seems like quite a stoic like you don't see him speaking a whole lot um he's he seems to be kind of an introvert and you can tell he's just crushed by not being able to get it the results are fantastic and clearly bowie was unfazed he was laughing the whole time i think it was just just great it was really magical and i will tell you pete i have been living in the same world as you all these years thinking that bowie was doing it all himself i i was completely stumped that uh, i was like no there's there's no way that somebody else is doing that and then you watch that yeah. footage it's like wow all these years. It's an example of some amazing, just straight up trickery that we love so much, right? I mean, it's just, it is fantastic, you know, guerrilla film architecture. And I, I think it's, it's so smart and so precious. Uh, and it's something that this film does extremely well. And uh, so, you know, whatever I think of the story and how all the pieces come together, this, this is that, this kind of thinking that goes into this film is something to really celebrate well it's movie magic and that's i think what what these guys were doing really well and you know i love the the advances of cg and what they're doing with it these days but at the same time you watch some of the stuff that they would figure out on their own um to pull off back in these days and it's like there's something special about that you know because now if we were going to have somebody doing what um what michael motion was doing uh, in place of uh, jareth here you would just have, uh, you know, David Bowie moving his hand back and forth, and they would digitally yeah. add the ball later. And, you know, it just takes some of that magic out of it. It's it's a little sad, but, I mean, that's just kind of the way of it. But I do, I do really enjoy this world building here, all of those sorts of things that happen, those brilliant things like that, just all the absurd and unexpected things. Uh, you know, another example I love is that fantastic moment when 
when Hoggle, um, you know, he's trying to find the right door and he lifts a piece of wood up off the ground, puts it on a wall. He opens it. It's a closet. He closes it. He opens it the other direction and it's the exit. I'm like, that is just, that speaks to the brilliance of what they were doing here. Some of those things feel very time bandits to me. You know, they feel, um, I, I don't know why time bandits does it so much better to my eye. Um, but, uh, you know, it does. Uh, but but this certainly feels uh, of a piece. I, I, I mean, part of that is, I think, uh, one, I think Terry Gilliam has, despite the fact that Time Bandits still is ostensibly a, uh, you know, a film for kids, it's, it's a much more adult sort of story. This is yeah. a Jim Henson film, and it feels very much a, a, a kid's film for kids. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, it's not very adult. I mean, the humor is very absurd and silly. And I think some of that silliness when it comes through, uh, it, it, I mean, even in the, the big battle at the end, I mean, we're not getting, you know, arms lopped off and things like that. We're getting, um, you know, th- when the rock comes down and hits the goblins, it's like bowling pins. They go all scatter all over the place. It's, it's silliness. Yeah. And I think that is something that draws the kids in and perhaps is something that made it harder for adults to uh, latch onto this one than, uh, than perhaps something like Time Bandits or even in Jim Henson's own world, uh, uh, The Dark Crystal. Yeah, I, I'm worried about watching The Dark Crystal again. I know it's on the list of things I need to watch with my kids. I tried a while ago and it was too too much. But now after watching this, I'm, I'm actually worried about watching. I sort of want to protect my memory of it. That's um, one that I, I also enjoy, but I feel the pace of that one um, yeah, is much slower than uh, it, it drags for me. But um, yeah, but yeah. I still, again, like this, really appreciate what uh, what Henson did with creating the world. Well, you you brought up that final scene, um, the the staging of that final scene. I had trouble with, and I know that again, that is that's a scene that's possibly the most for kids of the thing. It's just mayhem. It's just hullabaloo. Everybody's running in in circles. But um, I, I had real trouble because I I was I was either always in place I always knew exactly where we were or I we they were reusing set pieces uh so frequently that it felt like the place was was overused too familiar and lost a sense of place and so uh I I really struggled with all the running around it it's you know kind of the the heat and heart of the of their journey into the labyrinth sort of lost momentum for me there I can see that <laughs> <laughs> okay, point Pete. Uh, you want to? Do we need to talk a little bit about the backstory? Yeah, I mentioned Brian Froud. Um, he's a, a an illustrator, an artist who um, has done some beautiful uh, character work and stuff like that, and uh, worked with uh, with Henson, kind of coming up with the the look and everything going on with the Dark Crystal. After that, uh, they were chatting about uh, other ideas for another project. And uh, they kind of were, he threw out the idea of goblins and, and, you know, they thought it would be pretty interesting. And Henson was like, well, you know, I'd really like to do something that, that isn't just puppets, but I'd like to involve people in it too and kind of combine them. And uh, Froud was just like, well, what about a, you know, a baby uh, with all the goblins? And they really liked that idea because in fairy tales, you know, there's this whole idea. I mean, they pulled a lot from fairy tales, right? The whole idea of being able to, um, 
have the goblins come and take your take a baby away. It's something from fairy tales. And um, and so he painted this image of this baby sitting in amongst all these goblins, and that kind of became the the foundational concept for it. And uh, you know, uh, Henson met with a, a friend of his, Dennis Lee, who is a children's book author, along with Froud, and they chatted about it. And Lee was going to write this novella um, based on the ideas that they could use to kind of come up with the script. No one really liked that novella, um, uh, but it had a kind of a core there. And then they brought Terry Jones in to do the script. And and he was really drawn to Froud's drawings and uh, used those as inspiration and, and kind of ended up kind of creating the script from there. But even then, the script uh, went through a lot of changes um, because when David Bowie came on, uh, you know, he wanted, uh, you know, changes or, you know, Henson really wanted changes because he wanted to incorporate him more. He wanted songs in it. Jones didn't really want that. Um, uh, you know, just a lot of things ended up changing it. You know, George Lucas had a pass. They brought in Elaine May. Uh, she came in and, and did a pass to bring the characters out. And uh, from what I read, there were 25 treatments and different scripts before it was finally ready. And by the time it was done, Terry Jones said, I didn't feel that it was very much mine. I always felt it fell between two stories. Jim wanted it to be one thing and I wanted it to be about something else. In the end, I still think he was happy with it, but, um, I, I love his his story of of you know them shopping this around to other writers and then finally coming back to him he said he says Jim approached me and said you know I'm I'm sorry I I wonder if you could take another look at it I feel like uh, over the last while and all these other hands in it we've made it unfunny we've taken the funny out of it and um, uh, he said I didn't I didn't want it I didn't didn't want to do it but then he offered me sole script credit and I thought well how can you how can you turn that down. <laughs> So, uh, and and that's why we have no other credit for all these other hands uh, and all of these treatments uh, listed on the film. And Jones has sole credit. It's way to go, WGA. Where's the negotiations <laughs> then? Exactly. <laughs> when Henson speaks, apparently, <laughs> right. Um, so uh, anyhow, this is as a Jim Henson film. How does it feel under his direction? You know, I think that he's an interesting director. I, I don't think he's always like the, the strongest of directors. I think there are times throughout the film where it feels flat as far as the direction goes. Um, it, it doesn't feel overly um, put together. It, it feels very much like um, something that that he would do with the Muppets where it's, it, you know, he's so used to the world of puppetry that I think I don't think he generally thinks outside of the box as far as the way that he can position or move his cameras um, because you got to hide puppets they got to you know be here so you're hiding the you know the the floor and all that sort of stuff I don't think that's a problem but I do feel now watching the film I, I the direction is a little underwhelming um, and uh, paired with some some story elements I have in the script you know those are some of the weaker parts of it. I think that uh, what he does excel at, though, is telling a story with kids, for kids, uh, with puppets, and making worlds come to life. And that's where I think he really um, just does exemplary work. Yeah, he's a technician in in that regard. You know, you put him in the director's chair, and I, I totally see your point. He is, he's absolutely the guy who's trying to figure out how to make the mechanics work first and then, you know, the the heart and soul of the film as a, as a director. But I get the feeling that he was so much more of a guy who's, whose own heart was in bringing the characters to life. And that's, that's 
that's what he did. That's, you know, he's he is behind the, the most amazing, you know, iconic figures. It's hard to not to give him a pass on on some of the more uh, directorially uh, oriented, you know, flaws. But, you know, he does have director credit on a, a lot of stuff. Um, I don't have so much of a memory of The Great Muppet Caper uh, that came <laughs> immediately before this. Uh, it has its moments. It has yeah. its moments. Charles Grodin. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you lose? I, you know the Muppets. I, they're, let's just say they're going to be on the list this week uh, at some point. Um, and, and he's got some episodes of Fraggle Rock and, and Labyrinth, obviously, and a, a number of, of pieces. But I, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't think he's remembered for his directing. Well, no. I mean, he is really de- remembered for the characters that he's created. Yeah. Absolutely. Do we want to talk about our deep scene dive? Are we ready for that? I think we should do it. Andy, I, I had real trouble with this deep scene dive. It was not the one <laughs> I, I sort of expected, uh, but mostly because it starts with, it's very cool. It's very cool, but there's that stupid song. Oh, fine. Oh, stupid fi. song. <laughs> Stupid song. Well, the scene begins. Uh, this is after they've uh, defeated the goblins in Goblin City, and they have run into the, I guess you'd say, the palace at the center of it. And um, they uh, they find it, the main room, empty. And uh, she, Sarah says, oh, let's go up the stairs. This is where he is. And everyone's like, all right, let's go. And, and she's like, no, wait, I have to go do this myself it, and because that's the way it has to be. And Didymus says, well, if that's the way it has to be, then that's the way you must do it. And off she goes by herself, and she goes up the stairs, and we begin our scene when she enters the room, and it is basically an M.C. Escher uh, sketch of just the the nonsensical, uh, no-direction room that M. Escher had drew so famously. Which is, uh, you know, as a as a throwback to her bedroom in the real world, uh, that's another one of those pieces of uh, I'm I'm growing up and I'm going to exert my sophistication by putting an MC, MC Escher poster on my wall. Um, right. I mean, tell me you didn't do that. I, I waited until college. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> I was slow development. What can I say? <laughs> But but it happened. It did happen. That's good. It did happen. Uh, that's what you do. And so uh, you know, I think it. I I actually think that's a great tieback that that she has to actually face this element of of her own growing up, her own sophistication. That's really nice. And um, and I think they they nailed it. Like the the scene looks great. The the set looks terrific. They used it well. They used the play with gravity uh, well. I think it it that part visually it they're still able to make it make sense. And that is a, uh, a real challenge on a set like this to, you know, to make Escher make sense on film. Uh, and, and I really liked it. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jennifer Connelly, uh, you know, she's, she's all over the place. Her brother, Toby, uh, played by actually um, uh, Brian Froud's uh, infant son, Toby, uh, mm-hmm. is uh, the baby and he's crawling all over the place. And every time she thinks she's getting close, all of a sudden, Toby's on the other side and, uh, you know, on a different plane. Uh, it was fantastic the way all of that unfolded. And then, of course, Jareth, as David Bowie, uh, is uh, is singing, or I should say David Bowie as Jareth, is, is singing uh, <laughs> within you um, his song as, uh, as he is kind of watching Sarah per- pursue Toby and 
to a certain extent kind of getting in her way, at least toward the beginning of it. But then as it shifts, he ends up kind of just watching her as if he knows that she is um, growing up and moving past him to the point where she can figure things out on her own. And it's kind of an interesting element here, the way that, uh, that that ends up playing out. Like, he doesn't become much of a threat. I, and I think that's nice, the way that really kind of Jareth is weakened. And by the time you get to the end, I mean, he's really just, there's not much left to him other than, than words. Live without the sunlight, Andy. Love without your heartbeat. I can't live within you. I can't live within you. So good. So, so good. good. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's, I, I guess that's the right way to have it play out. I can't imagine another way to have it play out other than, you know, a, a final fight uh, in which she bests him as she bests the demon, the dragon, uh, which, which is sort of what I, I felt like we were going to get. Uh, from the opening of the movie, um, that that her coming of age meant she had to go best the dragon and not make it a, a battle of words, and and so it's a little bit of a letdown for me in in that regard. Uh, I, I don't like him to st- like to see him uh, neutered, um, you know, intellectually. I'd rather see him actually slain. <laughs> you wanted to see a real neutering. You know, I almost said that, but I knew that you would take, you would cross the line. You would cross the awkward line. I don't want to see David Bowie neutered, and I knew I couldn't get away from that once I, once I went down the neutering road. Uh, well, we, he had the pants. We we would have oh, known dear. if it had happened. Those oh, pants. My. Oh my, yes. <laughs> well, I, I just think it's great. I, and, you know, it's funny, I, I didn't really catch this until, um, I think it was Froud who was talking about it, how... When you get to the very end, and after she makes her leap of faith so that she can finally go rescue Toby, and then all of a sudden she falls into this kind of, uh, you know, everything falls apart, and she lands in kind of this this you know other plane of existence where everything is floating, and she has this final final verbal confrontation with the the Goblin King, and this is where that play that she was memorizing earlier comes into play because she finally has to say it and realize you have no power over me. And that becomes kind of a key point for her. But I didn't ever catch this, that that uh, Bowie's costume makes such a big change here where he's kind of faded and white and very ghost-like as if, as if all of his power has been drained because she has kind of gotten past all of that and and here he is this it's it's almost like this pale ghost of who he was this 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 uh you know he's just kind of this this i i'm picturing him in Hayao Miyazaki land where he's just kind of this fading away version of himself yeah. and and he's left to uh to do like he has no strength all he can do is try to stop her from saying the words and he throws out these lines you know just let me love you let me let me control you and you know and i will be your slave and all this but it's like it's nothing anymore and i i i never really caught that kind of that fading of him but i think it's actually really interesting over the course of this movie and particularly this scene it is more of an interesting twist too in that regard with the with the lyric that he's singing i mean that that he is now begging her he's now begging her to to um, stay with him to make him strong again at least that's the implication. That's what I'm sort of inferring. Um, but you're right that his power only existed in direct relationship to his distance from her and her distant worship of him. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Point Andy. 
<laughs> uh, cameras by uh, Alex Thompson. Uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting and uh, challenging. And I think uh, just to mechanically capture the Escher thing and not make it come apart. There are a couple of other interesting elements, too, that just the way they, you know, they, they do that that trick of the eye, you know, with the with the, the first wall of, um, uh, you know, that she has to pass through in the labyrinth. So there's that with the the walls were sort of overlaid and it was like that that 3D effect where she just had to walk through the hole. She just couldn't see it. Um, and uh, I thought that was that was very cool. And those are the sort of mechanical sort of mathematical challenges that come with with some of these um, some of these setups. And so I think in this scene in particular, I think she I think he uh, did a great job. Well, and they do a good job of playing around with all the different directions that we're looking, right? I mean, we've got, um, not only do we have, uh, you know, the ground, so to speak, where we're walking, but then sometimes you see David Bowie, uh, you know, upside down from your view or sideways from your view. Same mm-hmm. thing with Toby. And then when, when David Bowie f- flings the crystal out into the room, it bounces all over the place before bouncing up the stairs to Toby. So, with all of the the kind of the the absurdist logic that they've built into this world, um, I think that they do a great job of, of of bringing it to a point here in this this perfectly upside down all over the place uh, world. It's great, and and I think the wider shots are better. I mean, I think that's where you know where you really see that that placement matters. Some of the reaction shots and some of the the reversals are are a little bit squiggly with the um, you know with. Uh, close-ups and matte replacement and stuff that looked a little bit off but the the big shots that let you really celebrate what they've done with the set and and pulling that set together i think were very cool i also love the the um the physical effects that they do with uh particularly the moment when david bowie they have him in like a leg brace thing that brings him down upside down under the the platform that she is on and then on cue it lifts him and swings him around the platform to 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 match up with her and I, that's something that i always was just like mesmerized with the, the way that that ends up working it looks so interesting in the film and it's it's so creepy and it's it's interesting to me now to learn that it was an actual physical effect they did with david bowie in it he may not have learned the juggling thing but they'll sling his body around absolutely pretty cool uh, Elliot Scott is behind the production design of this uh, Escher-inspired set. Yeah, and uh, of the entire thing. I mean, he, this is, again, I think this is a person who uh, built a fantastic world and uh, and found the right ways to uh, to kind of bring it to life for Jim Henson and his team. Trevor Jones, Andy, your hero. I do love this music. I love the music and I love the songs. And you cannot do anything to take that away from me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, preemptive strike. There you go. There you go. Uh, I'm, you know, you can, you can have them, Andy. They're all yours. (laughs) I give them with an open and pure heart. I totally acknowledge that the music is very kind of 80s synth, but that's what was popular then. You know, when you couldn't get a big John Williams symphony to play, you know, you'd throw together this, this crazy synth score. And I think what, uh, Trevor Jones does here is uh, nice and it's it's catchy it fits the world and I love it 
And, you know, I'm not complaining about the synth score. I'm not complaining about the 80s, although there is plenty of ammunition to complain about the 80s. (laughs) I am complaining that the movie as an identity crisis, that it doesn't know what it is, and that jumping back and forth between these wacky, fraggle-ish musical numbers and the tone of the rest of the film is a discontinuity, and that's what I have a problem with. Um, So, uh, you know, the songs, they're fine. They're fine. And, in fact, they're earworms, right? Right? They're like they're manufactured to, you know, stick in my brain. Uh, but um, my argument is they just don't work as a part of this movie. I would have preferred the movie without it. I, I can see that. But, it, you know, it's a it's a it's a musical film. And, and I think in context of that, I think that they do fit again because of the the anachronistic tones, perhaps with some of them. I mean, Magic Dance feels very different than uh, this song here within you. Um, but I think that they still fit within kind of this absurdist world and particularly because there is, there are elements of, of silliness in this world. There are elements of romance. There are elements of just real peculiarity. And I think it captures all of that. But I, and I don't want to, I don't want to belabor this too much, but I just have to bring back up Time Bandits. Time Bandits, who tries to do, who endeavors to do the same thing, although arguably, you know, Terry Gilliam exists in a very dark place and has to tone his darkness down, uh, whereas Henson lives in a very light place and has to tone his darkness up, right? Um, I, I think that Time Bandits does, uh, is is an example of the kind of film I wanted out of this one, right? All the puppets, all of the the silliness, and and um, all of the the great little vignettes. Uh, without the songs, it's still a solid movie. No, I I agree. I I think that um, that is uh, that likely is accurate, but it's not. I mean, the fact of the matter is, it's just not what Henson set out to do. No, I, of course not. You of know, I mean, he, they yeah. they were very much um, intending to make kind of a darker film with the Dark Crystal. Um, although, you know, they even acknowledged it ended up being darker than they intended. Yes, right. and so. Here, they were trying to do something that was a lot lighter and a lot more yeah. jovial and fun and something that was, uh, you know, you know, for the kids, you know, for the kids, for the kids. <laughs> All right. So we talked about Jennifer Connelly uh, as Sarah. She's uh, she's lovely. 14 at the time. 14 at the time. I think that she had uh, she had done Once Upon a Time in America before this and I, which I think was her first film. And then I don't think there was much between the two. I think Phenomena, Seven Minutes in Heaven were the only two things that she did in 1985 and then this in, in 86. So I think she's great. I think it's I think it's interesting to look at the uh, other people that, that had auditioned. Initially, um, they had talked to Helena Bonham Carter uh, to play the role, but then they decided, no, we need to go do it and cast it with an American. So other auditionees uh, with Jennifer were Jane Krakowski, Sarah, Sarah Jessica Parker, Yasmin Bleeth, Marissa Tomei, Laura Dern, Ali Sheedy, Maddie Corman, and Mia Sarah. See, that is an interesting one, that last one in particular, because when did uh, Legend come out? It, it was, was the, the next year, year or the year I before? I think it was the year before. I think it was 85. That's I, I often transpose these movies and I when I see and, and think of Labyrinth, I'm usually thinking of legend. <laughs> They're very different. Very different movies. Very and, and that and one what I want in what I want in the Goblin King is what I got in Tim Curry. Yes, but just as a reminder, there are also some really 
just silly, just bad comedy stuff going on in, in I Legend. Know. That, so. See, I'll for I'll, I'll I maybe I forgive that too much. It's yeah. all right, whatever. Yeah. Uh, David Bowie as Jareth the Goblin King. Uh, they also had Michael Jackson and Sting as different people that they had been considering to play the role. So it's an interesting group, and all of them had been in projects. So I think. Yeah, uh, other film projects, and I think it's uh, you know fair to see kind yeah. of envision any of them kind of playing the Goblin King. I'm, if we have to have the movie exactly as it is, and I know there are people who are in each camp who are devotees of these people, I'm Team Sting. Should have been Sting, maybe, but I don't know. I just have a hard time uh, pulling David Bowie out of this. So I think I'll stick in myself right. in uh, David Bowie camp. Uh, do, uh, anybody else in the cast we want to talk about? We've got a, a lot of great, uh, great supporting folks, particularly in in these uh, costumes and the goblins. And uh, I mean, that's really the the bulk of the rest of the cast, right? I mean, you've yeah. got just a fantastic group of puppeteers. Um, doing just amazing work as uh, you know, whether it's the body puppets uh, like Ron Muick or Rob Mills um, playing Ludo, um, and Rob Muick also did the voice of Ludo. Uh, we already talked about Hoggle. Um, you have David Golse and David Barclay doing Didymus with David Shaughnessy doing the voice of him. Karen Prell did the Worm. Frank Oz did the Wiseman. Um, you've got, uh, and then just other key puppeteers, Steve Whitmore, Kevin Clash, Anthony Asbury, a bunch of great people um, who I think really brought these these characters to life. I mean, it was just, I, I don't know, just watching these puppets, I just feel like Jim Henson is a master at bringing creatures to life. I mean, they are just like, never do I see the person behind the puppet you know i just always see right. this this being there until didymus and uh, then didymus has a character and a movement all his own this of course he's he's the puppeteer uh behind gonzo and man did i see some gonzo and didymus <laughs> not the I, voice not the not, voice, not the voice. They, they intentionally didn't do the voice uh, of uh, dave goals didn't do the voice uh, it was uh, as you mentioned dave shaughnessy uh and because they didn't want you to hear gonzo yeah uh, but my goodness did i uh love some of that movement although what was didymus is he a mouse fox dog <laughs> i don't think they even knew they just kind of you know knew he was this this strange mix of things and uh i i don't know i kind of love that about him um there is something that uh described him as uh, a small dog fox goblin so i i don't know yeah. if that's actually true or not but yeah there you go well the character design is actually based on terry jones dog terry jones has a dog and that became didymus and that dog was named Mitch the bitch. And so Mitch the bitch is Didymus. And I find that delightful. You go, Terry Jones. That's hilarious. Hilarious. Uh, The only other person that I had on my list to bring up is, and we mentioned this when we were talking to uh, to Melanie, is the fact that Gates McFadden is involved in this. She, uh, you know, and, and she's credited as well she's credited as gates mcfadden but in the behind the scenes she's um mentioned as cheryl mcfadden um she did the choreography for the ball dance <laughs> it's like she and, got married and changed the wrong name <laughs> right <laughs> right exactly uh <laughs> cheryl gates nope nope let's just drop the cheryl <laughs> drop the cheryl <laughs> Um, she also was in charge of all the puppet movement and and kind of choreographing their um, the movements and everything. And it's it's interesting watching the behind the scenes and seeing her working with the the large groups of 
of uh, the puppeteers and the the little people playing the goblins and everything and just kind of getting them all in line to to do their bits. So uh, that's exciting yeah, to see. Very fun. And speaking of little people, I, I yeah. guess we should say Kenny Baker, Warwick Davis, Malcolm Dixon, Jack Purvis, um, a lot of people who um, we have uh, either talked about on the show before or people who um, warrant bringing up because they're just fantastic performers. Yeah. There's one more bit of trivia, and I have to tell you, I know I did not watch closely enough because as I was watching it, you messaged me and told me to look for the Bowie faces. There are um, seven different faces of the Goblin King that are kind of hidden throughout uh, the film. And um, the big obvious one that I I think everybody sees is the one where it's like, of kind of a, a half um, face of of him in stone, and then the camera trucks left, and you realize, oh, it's actually three stones. And but when you line them up perfectly, it makes this face of David Bowie, and it's yes. when Hoggle walks through before uh, before the whole scene where he gives him the peach. Um, that's kind of the real obvious one. But there are these other ones that are kind of hidden throughout. And and uh, many people have done different YouTube videos where it's like, here, look at all the different faces. Um, and it's just, it's this really interesting thing that they just kind of built into to some of the sets where you have these different kind of faces of him hiding in there. And it's almost as if the Goblin King is kind of spying and watching. And it just, it, I think in story context, it's interesting because it's like the Goblin King is always watching. He knows what's going on. But I think in just the world of production design in the film, it's just a brilliant little touch that they threw in there. That's very cool. I actually, I just put a link uh, to a BuzzFeed article with the stills. If you are interested in seeing the faces of the Goblin King, uh, they have the stills of all of the seven of them. And they're very cool. They're super hidden. I did not see any of them except for the the big one. I, I'm one of six. <laughs> I I caught, uh, I think the kids and I caught three or four. And uh, it was one of those things where once once I mentioned that to the kids, like they were just glued to the TV looking for them. Like, is that one? Yeah. Is that one? No, no, that's not one. Well, <laughs> see, you here. texted me. To be fair, I was not looking for them. To be fair. <laughs> calling it out no please give me credit you call you cre- and i just seen the big one like the one that you, you actually can't miss and so the last two there are two that come after that one and there is one in the uh ugh, the rectal bog <laughs> that's the best the uh, bog of eternal stench oh so great so gross there's they're in the cliff wall it's one in the cliff wall and it's so hard to see like i yeah. of course i would not have noticed that And there's another one in the trees uh just after they leave the bog of eternal stench and um it's 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 in the trees i maybe i could have gotten that one but goodness they are tricky they tricky. really are very yeah. tricky so th- this movie came out and i know that they uh, they they positioned a sequel right and it was all about uh ptsd <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Sarah has uh, to deal with her, with the she pain. Has to deal and with that. Yes. She, she goes back and she she joins a little club where it's uh you know they're right? uh, 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 Russian roulette. It's yeah. <laughs> oh man, you went much darker than I did. No one goes deer hunter from here. <laughs> uh, leave it to me. Uh, no, it's a um, uh, yeah. It's it's definitely one of those things where it it found its audience. It become became kind of a cult project, and um, in two thousand six and uh, and two thousand ten, 
a, uh, a Tokyo Pop, they actually published a uh, comic sequel, and it was a four-volume sequel that they had put together. And I believe Arkea Studios is uh, talking about uh, doing a graphic novel prequel to their film. So, uh, so pretty cool, pretty interesting about that. Looking at the uh, the Return to Labyrinth, that was the name of the the four-volume comic sequel. It looks really cool, and after looking at it, I'm like, I definitely have to pick that up and check it out because it just uh, seems like something I would really enjoy. Um, and then just uh, last year, uh, January 2016, Nicole Perlman said she's writing a spin-off story set in the same universe, and uh, just this year, Fidi Alvarez uh, confirmed that, uh, that he would direct and co-write the script with Jay Basu, um, Lisa Henson, and Duncan Jones serving as producers. So... It sounds like something might happen. I, I don't know. You never know until it's really happening um, in Hollywood. But um, but I'm really curious about this one because it is a story that that certainly has grown a following. I'm wondering if it's something that can can really keep it going. I, I don't know. I hope so. But in the hands of uh, Nicole Perlman, who I, I adore, she's wonderful. And then, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, I haven't seen a lot of Nicole Perlman's stuff, right? I mean, she's she's Guardians of the Galaxy, and right. then a lot of amazing things that are coming up, right? I mean, she's on uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes 3 and Mask, Mobile Armored Strike Command, uh, <laughs> Labyrinth, uh, Black Widow. She wrote a treatment to the announced Wrong. Black Widow standalone. Yeah, I skipped yeah. that. Did you see I skipped that? Uh, and, and then Captain Marvel. So she is jumped heavily into uh marvel universe and she's she's big into uh you know pop culture treatments and uh so i'm i i think very highly of what i have seen of her before and i think it might be fun to see what she could do with this did you say detective pikachu i also I, did not say that andy i didn't i was t- uh, everything that she's involved with i am like I have to see because I'm so... I was trying to give you... I was trying to save you, man. I was trying to save you in your new... Like, you need an intervention, apparently. No, no, no. I just... Addiction. Well, <laughs> no, but I, I think it's all... <laughs> I think all of her projects, though, it's like such yeah. a strange amalgam of of uh, of titles and stuff. I'm like, it's such an interesting totally. mix. Rom. Yeah. I, re- I have one issue of that buried somewhere in my room. Like now, I want to go back and look at it and go, what, what, what about it is drawing them to make Rom into yeah. a movie? I don't, I don't even remember Rom. What was Rom? It was like all, a all robot character. I can't really uh. remember either. But um, I, I'm, I'm really, really, really curious now. Rom, yeah. uh, Rom Comics, a Marvel superhero based on the Parker Brothers toy of the same name. So there you go. Yes, cosmic superhero. Yeah. Anyway, she's definitely deep in the Marvel uh, in the Marvel verse now, so it'll be exciting to see what what comes from uh, what comes from her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. Uh, how to do an award season? It wasn't a big award movie, uh, if <laughs> if that could really uh, surprise you at all. It did get four nominations at the BAFTAs. It got a nomination for best special visual effects. Lost to Aliens. At our uh, old friends, the Academy of Sci-Fi, Fantasy, and Horror Films, the the Saturns, it was nominated for best fantasy film. Lost to the boy who could fly, which um, surprises me. Um, at least my recollection of that movie, um, and it lo- and it also lost best costumes to Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home. And over at the Hugo Awards, um, the the book uh, sci-fi awards, they do something for films, and it was uh, nominated for best dramatic presentation, but lost to Aliens. Oh well, okay. 
I guess I'm okay with that. How to do in the box office. <laughs> uh, well, Jim Henson is, and his team had a budget of $25 million to make this movie, um, or $55 million in today's dollars. The movie opened on July 27th, 1986, opposite American Anthem, Running Scared, and Ruthless People. Unfortunately, this movie really struggled to find its audience, and it opened at 8th at the box office behind Karate Kid Part 2, Back to School, Legal Eagles, Ruthless People, Running Scared, Top Gun, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. With a packed several weeks afterward, it never improved either, and it looks like it actually was out of theaters in about two months, if you can believe it. Uh, the movie only ended up making about $12.7 million here in the States and about 182000 internationally for a total wow. of about $12.9 million, or 28.4 in today's dollars. Apparently, according to Jim Henson's son, Brian, uh, the movie's failure made this one of Jim's most difficult periods in his life and in his career, and he didn't direct another feature after this. He had such a hard time with it. Um, but I did read that um, that you know when he was... It was pneumonia that he died from in 1990, I believe. Yeah. And right around way that time... Way too young, 53 years oh, old. Oh, way too young. But it was right around that time... Um, it's like the the cult following had begun and jim knew that people were drawn to it and and brian said that it was it did warm his heart knowing that it was finding its audience at that point so that was good to know um so it has like i said did become a cult film and uh but unfortunately at the time ended up with an adjusted profit uh adjusted loss per finished minute of 263,302 so sad to hear uh, and, and it makes me feel bad now. Yeah, yeah. It's My, on you, man. That inner codependent streak, me and movies, me and <laughs> you, inanimate movies. <laughs> you made Jim Henson sad. I you. made Jim Henson sad. <laughs> well, you know, it didn't do well. I'm going to uh, spoil you a little bit. It didn't do well on my flick chart ranking. And that's just because, <laughs> you know, what's it going to do? It's uh, I, I, But I, I respect this movie. I respect the filmmaking. And, uh, it, you know, it didn't hold together narratively for me. And I feel like it was it was cluttered in what it was trying to say and what it was standing for. But but it was noble in its effort to do so. Uh, so I will uh, I'll I'll stick with that. I think that's fair. This is just, it's one that I love. I mean, I, I do acknowledge that there are issues with it, um, but I just, I grew up with this film and it's one that I hold close to my heart. Well, Andy, with that, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next year and uh, you'll see our list of all the films that we've talked about on this very show. Or you can just swipe over in your show notes, tap on the flick chart button. It'll take you right to this movie where you can add it to your list. And let's see how it stacks up with ours. What's first? First up, we have Labyrinth or Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz, please. I am... <laughs> Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. I, I, I actually am going to say Hot Fuzz, but I will say... Oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna work hard on this one, Pete, to try to delineate <laughs> uh, my love for this All film. Right. Therapy the begins. Film, so. Hot fuzz All it right. is. Labyrinth or Atlantic City. I'll take a labyrinth, please. Well, I mean, if it were just me, it would be labyrinth. I don't want to be an enabler. Uh, I mean it would be Atlantic City. I don't want to be an enabler here, but I am going to give you Labyrinth. Why thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Labyrinth or the Deer Hunter. Speaking of. <laughs> uh, I'm the deer hunter. I am Labyrinth. Sorry. Really? Yeah. Deer Hunter is a hard film to watch. True. It's a great okay. film. It is Let's, a great film. 
but Let's, this is this is one where I am voting on my all right. Uh, my voting on your heart, your twelve yeah. year old heart. Here That's we right. go. One, one two, two, three. Paper, paper, paper. Rock. you won. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Labyrinth or Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Labyrinth, please. Goodness, Andy. <laughs> Okay, I'll give you a labyrinth. I don't want to, but I'm going to give it to you. I don't want to. Do labyrinth, you hear that, Internet? I, I, I don't I want to. I hear you. <laughs> I, I appreciate you struggling with that one. Uh, labyrinth or Pale Rider? Labyrinth, pale, please. Pale Rider. Pale Rider. All right, here we go. One, one two, two, three. Scissors. 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 Sorry. Hoist by mine own petard. <laughs> All right, next up, we have Labyrinth or Sophie's Choice. What a oh, Sophie's man, Choice. the <laughs> irony. Sophie's Choice. <laughs> Labyrinth. Andy, okay. I am so All serious. Right. All right. Fine. Let's go. One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. 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 Scissors. Rock. Oh! Oh! All right, well, that lands Labyrinth at 210 on our list 210 out of 327 so you know it's i think it's a you know it's a good place i think it's fair it's 36 percent. you know i would i would vote i'd vote it (laughs) higher on my personal one it's 221 out of 3882 so it's about 94 percent oh wow (laughs) yeah that's uh higher than mine Uh, wow. Mine, you know, I have a thousand and three movies and this ended up at 745. Oof. Uh, which puts it at 26%, which, which I recognize. I mean, I recognize it for, for what it is. It's, it, it hit some movies that I just could not, I I could not in good conscience, uh, let it go against that. Maybe it would have been higher at flick chart, not, you know, delivered such crimes but i i have to say i don't feel bad about this placement um on letterboxd i i you know i think it was at a three star i i think it's a safe two and a half star for me um you know two and a half stars of respect and i'm with my kids we don't nearly need to watch it anytime soon yeah Sorry, man. Luckily, luckily no, it's fine. It's totally fine. I, you know, to each their own. I think that's totally fine. Um, is it a two and a half with a like or two and a half no like? Well, I mean, if it's because yours is uh, what a five star and a like, is that where you are? No, I, I think that I think five star is a little too strong for this one. It definitely has its issues. I actually think it's a four star and a like, despite um, my effusive love for it. I, you know, I'm I think it'll average. To a like, right? Two and a half um, and a like. How are we doing? What's sure. the rule again? Do you even remember? Um, uh, we have a rule. But I, I, I don't remember what it is. I, I, I feel like it's just something like we, you know, we just have to talk about it and decide: is it going to be a like? Because it's four. I, you, two and a half and a four. So what is that? Three and a quarter. So I think three and a quarter. I think there wasn't the rule that if it's over a certain point, it automatically gets a like or something. I can't remember. Maybe. We should have an equation. We need an equation, Andy. Theoretically, if it's over two and a half, it would get a like if if one of us at least have a, has a like, right? I, I think that is a fair thing to assume. So those are the two conditions. If one of us has a like and the average is over two and a half stars, it automatically gets a like. New rule. There it is. New rule. See yeah, if we remember right. that next time we need it. We won't. 
so there you go. Uh, what what do we get? Is it that becomes a three and a half star? Yeah, with a it'll, like? yeah, it'll bump up to three and a half. All right, all right. So there you go on Letterbox. That's fine. I'm I'm fine with that. That's fine. It's it, it was a good movie to watch, and I really enjoyed uh, talking about it with you and with Mel. And now I am I am uh, excited, Andy, to talk about our next series. Oh, it's going to be dark, Pete. We're, yeah, it's going to be this dark. is this is your chance to shine. We are jumping uh, across the pond. We're going over to Sweden. Actually, we're going to be jumping into the Millennium trilogy, looking at the original "The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo," directed by Niels Arden Oplev, and then we're going to be watching the two follow-ups that are. Um, uh, I'm curious about the the versions that we have because I know uh, the girl who played with fire and the girl who uh, kicked the hornet's nest were like like they had really long TV versions over there. Um, but I don't know if uh, I'm not sure what versions we actually have available to us here. So that's I guess we'll be exploring that as we so, as we go along with these. So you don't have yours yet. Do you have yours? The uh, the movie, the, the versions of the movie that you're going to watch for the show, because I feel like we should we should know. Well, the girl uh, with the dragon tattoo, I'm already watching that one. And that was a theatrical film that Oplev directed and I but I think that the other two um, that Oplev did not direct I'm trying to remember who directed I think it was uh, Alfredson uh, Daniel Alfredson well Niels Arden Oplev has uh, a director credit on both of those uh, oh right Alfredson and Alfredson does too on all three of them but I will tell you the versions that I have are from iTunes and they are all extended editions and the girl that kicks the hornet kicked the hornet's nest is three hours and six minutes. Girls who pl- the girl who played with fires three hours and seven minutes, and the girl with the dragon tattoo three hours and seven minutes. Wow! I'm okay. watching over nine hours of these movies. I have uh, the Blu-ray version of the dragon tattoo right now, and it's two and a half hours. I so I'm losing a whole uh, half hour plus that that you are getting. So I'm I'm curious, I guess, how that's going to play out. But oh, this is good. This is yeah. very good. And I've only seen all of these movies once. I very very much liked them, uh, but I've only seen them once. I don't think I'm going to remember uh, what's new. Yeah, I'm going to have to do some research since I'm going to be missing it to see uh, what I'm missing. I'm going to make sure to choose the deep scene dive from something that you aren't going to be able to see. <laughs> oh, you. <laughs> Oh, you. All right. Well, that's a treat. I can't wait to dig into those. Uh, And uh, thank you uh, for your conversation tonight. Thank you, David Bowie, for those pants. Uh, And thank you, uh, Mel, uh, for the suggestion and for coming to us from down under to join us on the show. It was great to have your voice as a part of the conversation. Because you know the drill, Andy. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, a platform for internet rage. <laughs> Here it is. Here it is, Andy. I, you know, I'm coming at you with a one star, and uh, it's okay. 
I, I, it's a one-star review of the movie. I would give it a one-star of reviews. <laughs> and I'll tell you why in a moment. This is, uh, the review is one stars, and it, it, it pass on this one is the review. Holy moly, what an achingly bad movie this is to watch. Terrible production, terrible acting, terrible direction, terrible quality. Shut it off after 10 minutes. I couldn't take it any longer. All right, Andy, why do I hate this review so much? Because it said it was a terrible movie, Pete. No, because he said it was a terrible movie and that he'd only watched 10 minutes of it. That yes, is not cool. That is, def- that is you that defiles the the act of reviewing. You got to watch the whole thing. I agree. It's uh, you, if you're not going to watch the whole thing, you really You don't get to no review. Place. Exactly. Yeah, you don't get to review. That's the you, you, take it take it back. Take it back. You take that back, Amazon. <laughs> All right, what's yours? creepy movie about a codpiece stuffing pedophile peeping Tom <laughs> who has stolen a girl's brother in order to impress her while the girl spends her time meandering aimlessly and sometimes getting help from a gang of crudely rendered, weak-willed, and mostly selfish puppets. <laughs> the rocks rolling along are the most developed and heroic players in the slapdash fantasy world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know what? Amazon wins with that one. That's, that's, that's a pretty Way good to go, one. Amazon. Oh, dear. All right. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>